welcome to another exciting episode of our podcast. I'm so thrilled to be joined by a special guest, Illinois House Representative Bob Morgan. We have a fascinating discussion lined up for you today covering a range of important topics. But before we dive in, I want to share a little something about our podcast release schedule. As some of you may have noticed, our episode count may seem out of order. That's because we release all of our episodes first on Patreon, a platform that allows us to connect directly with our dedicated audience. So if you're eager to get early access to new episodes and be a part of our vibrant community, I encourage you to subscribe to us on Patreon. Just head on over to chillinoy.net slash Patreon to join us. That's C-H-I-L-L-I-N-O-I-S dot net slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's one of the best ways to support us. It only costs $3 a month. If you're not able to pay $3 a month, don't worry. One of the greatest ways you can support us is by rating us favorably wherever you're listening to us from right now. If you're able to subscribe to us, please do. Believe me, it's one of the best ways to support us, and it's absolutely free. But if you're able to throw $3 our way, Please go to chillinoy.net slash Patreon, and you can get exclusive access to episodes as they release. So, are you ready for this engaging and thought-provoking discussion with Illinois Representative Bob Morgan? Let's do it. Enjoy the show. So you said you got your hair checked, so everything's good. We're good to roll, right? Yeah, you know, you always got to start. Um, if you're going to be outside, you got to check your suntan lotion on the head. Um, you know, if it's raining, got to make sure you get the hat on. It's a real thing. You, you, being bald is a, it, it's a, it's a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. Yeah. Well, Bob, let me <laughs> let me give you a little bit of an introduction for folks that don't know you. Um, our next guest. Representative Bob Morgan is a recognizable uh, figure who played a pivotal role, if I could say so myself, in reforming some of the criminal penalties for cannabis possession and use right here in our state of Illinois. Um, as one of the instrumental representatives, Bob helped spearhead the formulation of the first legal cannabis market in our state, making our market the 21st in the nation. But his contributions extend far beyond that. Um, he championed the expansion of qualifying conditions for the medical cannabis program, which uh, helped us to overcome previous obstacles that were imposed by our former governor. Additionally, and this is a big one, Representative Morgan successfully established the medical cannabis program as a permanent fixture in the state of Illinois. So let's extend a warm welcome to Representative Morgan as he joins us today. Thanks again, Bob, for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Yep. And before we get started, are you at all familiar with uh, our show? <laughs> yeah, definitely familiar with the podcast. And uh, I know that you've been doing this for a little bit. Uh, and I've talked about a number of different issues impacting the industry. Cool. Well, hey, thank you. That's cool to know that you were aware. The reason, the only reason I brought that up and asked you that at the start is because folks today will be a little bit shorter of an episode. So, Bob, 
pardon me for just getting right to it, but since we're short on time, I want to just dive Let's jump right in. in. Um, can you tell me about the early days of the medical cannabis program? And one of the things I specifically wanted to get your comment on um, was this video, which I'll just play a short excerpt uh, of it. It Let me just say that before we watch this, it was hard for me to discern whether or not this was just election cycle mudslinging or if uh, there was any basis behind it. So for all those reasons, I wanted to get your comment on this. Speaking of our former governor, here he is. The bottom line is this. Thanks to Pat Quinn's secret insider process, there are a lot of questions left unanswered. But there's one thing we know for sure. Something stinks, and it's not the marijuana. This process is so overtly corrupt, so indefensible, it would make Rod Blagojevich blush. The application process for medical marijuana should not be held in secret where insiders win and taxpayers lose. It should be open and transparent. So I wanted to stop there because there's not really much more to the statement. What what can you tell me about what was going on uh, for context for me and our listeners? Uh, yeah, so I'm trying to remember exactly at that point in time. Uh, so that was about a, a month and a half before the election. Uh, I recall I was uh, I was organizing the uh, internal reviews of the applications at that time, uh, and and really just serving as a lawyer uh, at the state. So uh, I'd spent much of that year, starting in January, if I remember my timeline correctly, putting out the rules for the program. Uh, we started accepting applications from patients. Uh, it would have been probably around this time. Uh, if I remember correctly, of when patients could first start applying. So we had our first applications from patients, maybe it was a month before, maybe August, um, and everything was just kind of building uh, amidst uh, a gubernatorial election. Um, and it was chaos. Um, we had a plan, I had a plan. I had built out a plan about a year earlier. Um, it, I, I called it my own internal master plan where I literally had a, a spreadsheet that was a month by month calendar of all the things I had to do. And at this point in time, September, um, I knew the applications had been submitted. Um, and my job at that point was to work on reviewing and, and scoring those applications with an internal process. And then you had uh, at that time, candidate Bruce Rauner and, and future governor saying that something stinks and this process was corrupt and I was the one running the process. So I remember, I remember that very vividly. Uh, and it was a very, oh my goodness, uh, type moment, uh, a little bit more vulgar than that. Um, remembering that there was, there, there was a narrative being built around a process I had created and was managing. So I remember that very well. Yeah. And just if you could comment, like, I'm curious, he makes these allegations, then he becomes governor, and then he issues all the licenses that he said were um, a part of a right. corrupt process. Yeah, the, the exact applications, the exact scores that I and my team had set up, uh, he put out and owned and took ownership for. Um, the the uh, So while that period of time was crazy in September, it was really um, once Governor Quinn left office and Governor Rauner took office that things really got uh, wild. Um, 
there was, uh, so on a Monday was when Governor Rauner took over on that Sunday was when Governor Quinn announced that he was not going to award the licenses. Um, we were ready to go. We had completed our end of the administrative review uh, and it was a Sunday afternoon. Uh, and at that point I, I was, uh, I was not sure whether Governor Quinn, I'd been pushing Governor Quinn for a while uh, at that point to award the licenses and he, he had not, this was after the election mm-hmm. in November. And uh, that Sunday where I was told that he was not going to award the licenses um, very shortly after it ended up in the newspaper. And um, I was getting calls from medical cannabis patients um, a few in particular that I was, I was on the phone with, and we were all pretty shocked and saddened about all the work they got into this, wondering if this whole program was about to collapse. Uh, and at that time, that day, I vividly remember I made the promise that I wasn't going to quit until we got the program, I quit uh, literally and figuratively, I uh, wasn't going to give up until the program was up and running. And the first few months, uh, first few weeks, really, of, of the Rauner administration, uh, I spent a lot of time with his incoming team, his lawyers, his policy people, and and showed them my work, so to speak, to prove that what we had done was was on the up and up, and it was consistent with the the message of the program, and was going to help patients. And with the help of a lot of other people too, he ended up awarding those licenses, uh, which led to the medical cannabis program that we still have today. Yeah, and just for you know context, folks, this originally started. Correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Bob. Uh, as uh, the compassionate use of medical cannabis, it was the pilot program at that time, which you've made it the right. program. It's it's here to stay. Um, so, and, and it was limited to uh, a, a short number of very serious conditions, right? Cole, I lost you for a second. Oh, did you lose me? Yep. I think I lost you here yeah, for a second. I'm back here. I'm here. Okay. You're frozen yep. still. Um, well, oh, there Sorry you about go. that. No, Might you're... be our connection, but I, I can see you and hear you now. You're all good. Um, so I was cool. saying uh, the, the list of qualifying conditions was short, uh, very serious uh, conditions, you know, not just anybody with a back issue problem or whatever, like we've seen in California can sign up. Oh, did I lose you again? Uh, I can hear you just fine. I know the connection's breaking in and out, so it's probably on my end. So I'm sorry about that. Why don't we uh, kick our video off? Uh, maybe that'll sure that'll help us out okay. if you're able Happy to. Do. Thank yeah. you. Sure. Uh, Do it old school. Is that still working? Yep. Great. Um, yes, we started with the program with a really small number of conditions. We did not have PTSD. We did not have epilepsy. We did not have chronic pain. Uh, we initially in the law that was passed required patients to get fingerprinted as if they were criminals. Um, and in retrospect, it was just so insane, but that's literally what it took to get 60 votes in the house of representatives. That's how close the vote was in 2013. Yeah. And I get the impression that's what a lot of these things that maybe we scratch our head on that, that might be the result of, uh, you know, some of these, like you say, that, that regulation and, and, or that rule specifically, um, was made maybe as a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? You kind of compromise. There we go. Yeah. Is that right? No, it so. was. 
That's right. And a vast majority of the things that still make us scratch our heads as to why we do what we do, I could point to any number of reasons. Some date back to the passage of law in 2013, others to the adult use program passage in 2019. Um, why, why can medical cannabis patients not purchase at the 1% sales tax at any dispensary? And the answer is drafting. It was a drafting. It wasn't an error. I, I know why we did what we did, but we had to define the three different categories of dispensaries, the original 60, the second location, second site, additional 60, and then the new social equity dispensaries. We had to define them differently so we could distinguish them in the law. And when we did that, we didn't marry up the, the tax allowance for medical patients. Um, I identified that as we were drafting, but it happened in a way that I wasn't able to fix it before the law passed. Gotcha. Um, and so again, it just, it doesn't make any sense until you understand some of the context of, of how crazy it was to develop some of this. Yeah. Another one that I think of that I personally scratch my head at, but I'm just going to be candid with you and saying that I feel like I'm uh, alone, at least not, not from the consumer side, but I just don't hear it from any of our elected officials or, or people in the industry, uh, license limitations. I actually heard you talk about, and I didn't realize this until I heard an interview with you that there actually was a conversation about how many licenses should be issued, uh, at the onset or, or those original conversations about the medical cannabis program. I didn't realize that unlimited licenses were an option on the table. And that's something you had said in the interview I caught. Yeah. Um, what do we look back at all on license limitations and, and think maybe that's something we should have reconsidered? I, certainly there are a lot of things in retrospect that I wish we would have done differently. Um, I, I, in that interview, I might've also mentioned there was a point at which only one entity was going to get licenses. Yes. Right. Um, so there was a version of the bill where uh, it, right. it wasn't ever seriously going to pass, but that was that was something that someone had introduced as a concept that only one business would be able to grow and cultivate. And then there was another point where it was unlimited. Uh, and yeah, it was a negotiated element of how many licenses total there would be. Um, but no, I, I think you're right. I think you can tr you can trace back all these decisions and look at how that's impacting us today, that you have now over 200 new social equity dispensaries. But until they're open, they're competing with 120, give or take, just a little bit less than that, of these, these original medical cannabis businesses that have evolved for the last 10 years. Um, and they're competing against them directly without, with, with one arm behind their back because they're starting late. They're, they're, they don't have the same equity and investment because the market has tanked. So you have a lot of things that made it much more difficult for them. Some of the best locations have already been taken up yeah. by the original dispensary. So it, you know, when we're talking about what are our goals for the program, these are serious, serious, major policy questions that it's really hard to have once you create a program and you have some of the legacy and in institutions like this. Yeah. Well, I'd seen you had said I probably in that same interview that I'm thinking that, uh, you know, it's not an accident that Illinois doesn't look like Michigan, California, or Oregon. And you said something to the effect of, you know, that we based what we came up with on uh, markets that were, quote, very, very regulated, a lot more like gaming or banking than they were like a barbershop or any other retail store. I, I wonder, I've been asking cannabis industry participants and just a lot of people, why does the cannabis industry welcome limitations 
like those in gaming or banking versus a barber shop or a retail store. Um, and, and I guess if I could add to that question, my main, my main con, if we could just get right to brass tacks, my main issue with license limitations is, well, let me ask you, Bob, what's the main enforcement mechanism of license limitations? Like if I don't have a license and do what these companies are doing, what, what, what punishment do I get? Yeah. And, and I, I think that, that you're, you're exposing and talking about a very real um, disparity between how we think about cannabis today in, generally speaking, in the public versus where we were five years ago or more specifically 10 years ago, that this limited license um, dynamic, this dichotomy we've created it doesn't reflect the way that we're trying to move with this. We're, we're trying to create a much more open industry, but we're, we're stuck with trying to wedge that into an industry that is heavily regulated. And those that operate outside of that, then by definition, you're, you're in violation of the law. Um, in fact, more than that, you're competing with and undermining and undercutting specifically the, the craft grows or the, or the social equity dispensaries that we want to be, dis to, to be successful. Right? And we had this whole, oh, go ahead. Sorry for cutting you off, but that's actually, no, you fine. just touched on a really good point that I think is, like you say, the root of the issue. We've criminalized things by pairing them with assumed intentions. So like, for example, if I'm caught with a large number of cannabis or a large quantity of cannabis, it's just assumed I'm trafficking it. And it's like, right. you know. Uh, yeah. it, it seems like the main enforcement mechanism for this system is the continued criminalization of cannabis, which is like why we need social equity, right? Right. Well, and, and again, like the, I see the social equity dispensaries is stuck in the middle. You are stuck on one end because you have the legacy MSOs in the, the initial medical industry, uh, CBAI, uh, generally speaking, but, but those that uh, were brought up with the original medical program versus the hemp industry, which not hemp growers, I'm talking about hemp retailers of Delta 8, Delta 9, Delta 10, THCO, and, and those that are operating 100% outside of any regulated market. And they're wedging and they're, they're pressuring and putting, putting real pressure on the social equity dispensaries trying to not just succeed, but to survive. And so to your point, we're creating this dynamic of, of, criminalization but also just inability to succeed on a business level and it really is not allowing we're not we're not giving ourselves the space to have a serious and open policy conversation and move our legislation in that direction um, and instead it's just this haphazard um, well it's a new legislative session and transporters we have too many transporter licenses so we have to fix it and it, it just it's much more reactive than thoughtful Right. And I, I think you just touched on a really big point. It's like, we're having conversations about both. So what I just was talking about really, I mean, yes, it, it is about the industry, but I'm really just talking about the criminalization of cannabis, which I thought we all agreed was an issue. You know what I right. mean? And it just seems like the, the backbone of this system is like, if you don't play within it, well, then we're just going to use the same old rules like I've had licensed attorneys on the show and they say that now that cannabis is quote unquote legalized, there are more ways now to get in trouble with cannabis. It's like we just spelled out ways uh, than before 2020. 
you know? And Yeah. And, and right. And so now you have law enforcement who've decriminalized it. Right. Um, but you also have those who are transporting legally purchased, whether it's medical or adult use, you're legally transporting your cannabis. And if you happen to have too much on you, as you're transporting it, you're, you're committing a criminal act if you're pulled over. Right. right. And so right. what are we doing about that? And, and to me, that's such an obvious fix in terms of possession. Um, in other words, we, we are tacking on legally purchased cannabis and illegally uh, consumed, purchased, whatever cannabis together for a total volume. And then they're using that as the criminal charge. So if you're adding it all together, you're going to end up with a much higher criminal charge and potential conviction. But that doesn't make sense. But that's the way the law is working right now. And so our efforts to fix that, that became just too complicated for people to think through in the short legislative session. And so we just didn't get it done. And there's a real harm on that from a criminal justice perspective. Yeah. And I'm just like I'm thinking forward. I feel like those things are much more digestible than what we're talking about right now is much more digestible than, for example, craft growers push it, pushing for 5,000 to 14,000 square feet. Like there's e- economics. You can like show a calculation on why they need it. Look, the average consumer doesn't care, but I think if you like tried to make a pitch, so what we're basically saying right now, Bob, would you agree that what we're saying right now is that cannabis is not really legal in Illinois right now because you can still get in a lot of trouble for it? I mean, we, like, it's not totally accurate, but do you feel like that's fair to say? No, I, I, I wouldn't say it that way in the sense that the vast majority of people that possess cannabis in any form in any way, vast majority, um, regardless of where you are and what you possess, generally speaking, again, this is, this is a generalization to your question, it is, it, it is not criminal. So as a general matter, you're not going to end up with a criminal charge, let alone a conviction in jail time, no matter how much cannabis you possess and what you're doing with it. Now, there are exceptions, like you noted. Well, right? that, I was going to say that, right, and that's my issue. It's like anything over 30 grams for citizens, but frankly, it's crazy that for non-citizens, well, you can only have 15 grams, and if you get caught with right. more than that. So like the quant, I think maybe to put it more accurately, you are a lawyer, so I think you would appreciate this. Yeah. I think the more accurate thing would be to say that we decriminalized the possession of small amounts of cannabis and we legalized the purchase from limited locations within the state. I think that's that is accurate. Yep, I agree. You can't grow it. That's a very important problem. I mean, medical cannabis patients can. um, But I just feel like, you know, until you can grow something at home. That's why I kind of jumped to the level of, I know it felt a little bold and out there, but like, it's not legal if you can't grow it at home, you know? Well, yeah. And and the ways in which it continues to impact people legally, job wise, you know, not just THC job testing, like I've I've tried to adjust in the law, but workers compensation, the ways that that impacts drug testing for, for getting hired in the first place, the ways that uh, this can impact custody, uh, if one one spouse, a strange spouse, tries to use uh, drug use against them for child custody issues, you know, it really becomes a question. Firearm ownership and and purchasing of firearms and, and bullets, you know, something that uh, for my my advocacy on, on gun reform, you know, that that puts me in one side of that that ledger, so to speak. But I think everyone agrees that we shouldn't be, regardless of where you are that we shouldn't be criminalizing somebody because they use legally purchased cannabis and then try and purchase a firearm or ammunition. But that's the way federal law is still written. 
Yeah. So there, there's a lot of ways it impacts people. Before I move, I know we got to wrap up here, so I'm going to try to make this quick. What do you think the solution is? Personally, I think the solution is to deschedule cannabis to repeal the Cannabis Control Act of 1978, which is largely still in effect today. What do you think about that? I concur. How do you how do you think we do that? Do you think it's possible to get the energy for that? If we made it just I, digestible, I thought, cannabis is not legal. I feel like you start with yeah, that. It's not actually legal you know, because I, all I, these rules exist. I always thought that uh, former President Obama would do that. And then I actually thought that former President Trump might do that because if you really want to talk about electoral politics, one of the things that just really breaks down across the political spectrum is support for legalizing cannabis. And I think that that would be a hugely popular political thing to do. Um, he Neither president did that. And I don't think President Biden shows any indication that he would do that either. Um, We've obviously moved a little bit forward on some of the research for descheduling or reducing the scheduling for some of the research pieces. But unfortunately, I, I, I agree with you and I, I would support that. I, I don't think we're really that close to that happening. Um, I, I just don't see that in the most immediate future. Okay. Thank you. Um, really quick on the, the Delta A, I want to just try to be short on this, but you know, it seems like that conversation you'd brought it up centered around child poisoning. And I just wanted to say like, for the record, I don't think it's fair to say anybody got poisoned. They just got high. I mean, you look at poison control calls and I believe 40% of calls is the last number I heard for kids. 40% of those calls are from energy drinks. And that is defined as poisoning, you know, irregular heartbeat, stuff like that. And nobody's talking about restricting the age on those and the same things could be said about delta eight products as energy drinks you know they look like they're marketed to kids everything else and again i thought we learned from prohibition that making things illegal doesn't keep things out of children's hands so i'm not saying yeah, this to and, you Bob, I, but just for the no for no the, no uh, and if anyone's curious you know where's my position on this what, what am i hoping to do i had the cbd safety act uh, that we passed out of the house two years ago and what I was trying to do was just give authority to the state to intervene. Uh, you know, to me, it's it's testing and labeling. That's really what we should be talking about. You know, you can have a there's a serious argument and discussion to be had about how to regulate it and where. But ultimately, to me, the difference between an energy drink in and Delta Eight is that an energy drink is is in theory tested and certainly under the jurisdiction of the FDA. So when these energy drinks, any kind of food or drug um, that is going into the marketplace has to meet different standards and is subject to review and packaging and labeling requirements. Um, you don't have that with Delta-8. There's no jurisdiction whatsoever in Illinois to regulate these products, whether it's a food and drink infused or not. And right now, just down the street from my office as I'm talking to you today, there are 12-year-olds walking in and buying hemp cigarettes and Delta 8 laced hemp cigarettes because there's no regulation whatsoever of it. Hold on. What's, uh, you don't have to name the location, but is it like a tobacco shop or something? They should be asking for people to be 21. And I find that's generally the case. I mean, you're right that it's not a legal, legally spelled out. Well, it depends, out. right? So some of the, some stores are tobacco based and those are generally looking, you know, be, just because they have to for the tobacco side sure. of it, they're asking for identification, but there are more and more stores that are not selling tobacco that are just hemp based stores. 
and yeah. CBD-based stores and kiosks and malls, right? They're not selling tobacco. They're well, selling hemp-based products. And I think we can agree. They should, uh, I think what we can agree on is 21 years of age or older labeling and testing. But I think that, I think that's it. Like it, it, it's troubling to me that it seemed like it was a push by the current licensees to just have complete control over cannabinoids. And it's like, it seemed like they, in this instance, were pushing for further criminalization because, you know, the federal law allows us to do those things. So why are we like, you know, do you get where I'm coming well, from? Well, and, and like you said, I mean, I think that there really is a big policy conversation about it. Um, but I also do think that when we really start to look at how big the hemp and in particular CBD market is growing, it is directly competing with our social equity dispensaries. When you start talking about Delta 8, and I'm not saying one is right or wrong, but you have to acknowledge that there's direct competition between what an Illinois social equity dispensary has to do to be just within the law, let alone be successful on the economics and the, the testing and where they're buying the products, um, what the packages have to look like, what they have to say, um, and the amounts that they can sell versus any other kiosk or store that's just selling Delta 8. Right. But right? I guess my no thing is, I get what you're saying with the competition thing, and I'm being mindful of our time, but uh, you know, I just feel like it, it all too often becomes a conversation about the industry when what this was supposed to be about was like, you know, not throwing p people in jail. Yeah. Or just cannabinoids. Like I get what you're saying. And there's a, there's a conversation. No, no, and I hear there. your point and, and I'm not advocating for criminalization. I think that we just need packaging and labeling standards because again, I, I, I really do think back to what happened with bath salts at gas stations 10 years ago. And to me, this is, it's not exactly apples to apples, but I'm, I'm being honest. And I think the conversation has to be honest, but I do think that there's an element here where people are selling stuff and you said people aren't getting poisoned. I do think the truth is most people don't know what they're buying when they're buying Delta eight from these stores. Right, right. There are QR codes that are oftentimes manipulated if they have a QR code. Um, and there's just no regulation. And, and to me, in my heart of hearts, I'm a regulator, former regulator, and I just want to see stuff that's safe. Uh, I think everything else is secondary. Yeah. If I could really quick, did you see the, yeah. I saw the $40 million uh, being moved from the medical cannabis fund to the cannabis business development fund in the past. You had talked about maybe giving a refund to medical cannabis patients. Is that still, what do you think about that? Is it still even possible to do what you'd proposed in the past? Uh, I, I do think it's still possible. Um, I have not quit on that and will continue to push hard on that. I think I, I really believe in, in that and having a refund for patients. I think it's their money. Um, it was not my initiative, uh, nor was I really asked whether I thought that this was a good idea. So I, sure. I was unfortunately pretty surprised to see that happen. But um, rest assured, I will continue to push for, for that kind of a, a refund to patients. It's, as you know, it's too expensive. It's not covered by insurance. And they're paying for the, these products. And, and then that money is just sitting there now being used for something totally unrelated. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, man, I have more questions for you, but I know you said you had to hard stop at three. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, this is not the last time we're going to talk, Cole. And thank you for having me on. And uh, thank you for what you do. And we'll, we'll talk again soon. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed the conversation, Bob. I uh, enjoyed the time with you. Thank you. I did it. Thank you so much. You have a great weekend. And thanks for, for having me on. Yep. Take care. Bye. All right. Bye.